The Hamlet Podcast, episode 35. Hello and welcome to this exploration of Shakespeare's Hamlet with me, your host, Connor Hamilty. In the last episode, we finally got some details from the ghost. He was murdered by Claudius with a pretty spectacularly nasty poison. The king was sent to meet his maker without any of the usual Christian comforts offered to a person as they near death, and therefore sent to his account with all his imperfections on his head. Horrible, all of it. This being the final scene of the play's first act, we are reaching the apex of the story's exposition. Soon, we are going to have to move away from setup and toward action, as indeed will Hamlet. The ghost has some suggestions for his son, instructions, perhaps. His speech continues. If thou hast nature in thee, bear it not. Let not the royal bed of Denmark be a couch for luxury and damned incest. But howsoever thou pursues this act, taint not thy mind, nor let thy soul contrive against thy mother aught. Leave her to heaven, and to those thorns that in her bosom lodge, to prick and sting her. Fare thee well at once. The glow-worm shows the matin to be near, and begins to pale his uneffectual fire. Adieu, adieu, Hamlet, remember me. The ghost has already made it very clear that what he needs is revenge. He's already told Hamlet to revenge his foul and most unnatural murder. Even before explaining how it happened, he's been very direct with this command. He sums up the whole description with a simple plea. If Hamlet has any natural feelings or nature in him, he should not put up with this terrible turn of events. He should not bear it. He should not let the royal bed of Denmark be a couch for luxury and damned incest. Now he moves from the murder to unsettle Hamlet with even more uncomfortable details. Hamlet himself has already voiced his opinion that his mother marrying his uncle is an incestuous union. His father conjures up a very similar image. Hamlet Jr. mentioned the incestuous sheets. Hamlet Sr. talks about the bed itself. He also talks of luxury, here given a negative connotation of indulgence, transgression and excess. There's absolutely no love lost nor left between the ghost and the new king, his brother Claudius. What's very interesting is that the ghost insists to Hamlet he should in no way harm his mother. Gertrude is not to be touched. The ghost is eager that she be left to her own devices, to be chastened by her own private demons. But howsoever thou pursues this act, taint not thy mind, nor let thy soul contrive against thy mother aught. Leave her to heaven, and to those thorns that in her bosom lodge to prick and sting her. However Hamlet chooses to proceed, he should in no way dirty his mind, or let his soul cook up a single move against his mother. He should leave her to heaven, or let her answer for whatever her sins may be to God, and to those thorns that in her bosom lodge to prick and sting her. Already the ghost believes that Gertrude has some thorns in her heart, whatever her actions may have been. This is a very interesting set of lines for the actor playing the ghost. There's a great many ways that he could play it. Is he angry at Gertrude and glad she's suffering? Does he still love her? Or perhaps does he have an understanding of the tricky situation of being a royal widow, that might make him decide that she'll suffer enough without any help from Hamlet? Is there even a sweetness to him insisting that Hamlet not go after her in any way? 
Or does he want Hamlet not to be tainted by the sin of matricide, since revenge against the king will be enough of a struggle, even though it is entirely justified? Gertrude's involvement in the murder is a curious issue. Does she know Claudius did it? Was she involved with Claudius before even the old king died? Or is she completely blameless? A company staging the play has a wealth of options to explore in this. Just what is the nature of the thorns that sting her heart? The ghost has said plenty by now, and, in line with the urgency he indicated earlier, he wraps things up. Fare thee well at once. The glowworm shows the matin to be near, and begins to pale his uneffectual fire. Adieu. Adieu. Hamlet, remember me. For my money, there are few descriptions more lovely than this. The ghost knows that his time is almost up, because even the glowworms are dimming their lights, now that dawn is coming. It's a magical image, the ghost, with an attention to detail entirely appropriate for one condemned to leave this life again, can appreciate even the pale, uneffectual fire of a glowworm before the sun rises. It's marvellous. Rather than calling it morning, or dawn, or sunrise, the ghost notes that matin is near. In medieval monastic life, the first order of the day, or the last of the night, was matins, a set of prayers offered up at cockcrow. So, even before there was light in the sky, these prayers were said at the very end of the night. It's just another shade of nuance here that the word Shakespeare chooses for the ghost is one that echoes the Latin for morning, and also prayer, and the old world rapidly disappearing from English country life. In what we would assume is the last farewell the ghost will manage, this time around leaving the world on his own terms rather than at the hands of a murdering brother, he says a proper goodbye, with his final command attached. Adieu, adieu, Hamlet, remember me. The word adieu itself comes from very old French and is a contraction of the farewell greeting, I commend you to God, or adieu, adieu. Here the father commends his son to God, and presumably hopes for a similar blessing for himself. Even more importantly, he exhorts his son to remember him, and with that he exits. Poor Hamlet's head must be pretty melted at this stage. All this shocking information from, let us not forget, the ghost of his dead father, all delivered in an urgent catalogue of commands and requests. Hardly surprising, then, that what Shakespeare gives Hamlet to say in response isn't the most coherent or effective set of lines he'll ever speak. Oh, oh, you host of heaven! Oh, earth! What else? And shall I couple hell? Oh, fie! Hold! Hold my heart! And you, my sinews, grow not instant old, but bear me stiffly up. Remember thee! I, that poor ghost, while memory holds a seat in this distracted globe, remember thee. Hamlet doesn't quite know where to turn. He cries out to all you host of heaven, just about everyone above, O earth, and then everyone on this planet, and then what else? And shall I couple hell? Shall I include hell too? There's a sense almost of loneliness here as the prince tries to figure out where to turn and who might be an ally for him in all of this. The exasperation of it leads even to a little curse. Fie! And then he tries to regain his self-control, get back on track. He hopes that his heart will hold and not break further or, God forbid, stop beating. Then, rather uniquely, he calls upon his sinews, begging them not to grow instant old, 
but continue to hold him up. Characters in distress in Shakespeare very frequently address their minds and hearts, exhorting them to persevere. But this is the only instance that I can find of a character exhorting his sinews in particular. The image or the medical knowledge of what sinews were doing was clearly appealing to Shakespeare in around 1599, since at around the same time he wrote Hamlet, he put lusty sinews into Julius Caesar, noble sinews into Henry V, and indeed a sinewy Charles into As You Like It. Hamlet seems staggered that the ghost is asking him to remember him. He repeats the request, almost bemused, remember thee, more than once, as though trying to point out that he's been unable to do anything but think about his dead father for quite a while now. Aye, that poor ghost, he says, while memory holds a seat in this distracted globe. He will remember his poor father for as long as his memory holds a place in this distracted globe. By this, perhaps Hamlet means his own head, certainly distracted of late. He could also mean the whole world, the whole globe, bringing us back to the echoes of astronomy and scientific progress that Shakespeare employed in the very first scene of the play. The word distracted can also mean out of order or out of joint, and so Hamlet might mean that the world itself is not right at the moment, not least given that his uncle has murdered his father and usurped his crown and marriage bed. And of course, there's a third meaning possible. Any time that Shakespeare uses the word globe, particularly since here he couples it even with the word seat, we can imagine that he's enjoying the mention of his own theatre and the buzz of reminding an audience that he knows that they are there. This theatrical self-reference is as far as we will go for this episode, but Hamlet is on the brink of action now at last. He has a spur to prick the side of his intent, and the next four episodes will bring us rollicking to the end of this scene as he starts to work out what his next steps might be. I hope you'll continue tuning in to hear how it all comes together. And in the meantime, as ever, you can find all of the previous episodes and a wealth of supplementary material on our website, thehamletpodcast.com.